You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, I look into how infectious diseases will be monitored and controlled during the Olympics and Paralympics. We've heard a lot about caring for athletes and encouraging the general population to get active, but ensuring the health of the millions of people set to descend on London is also a major challenge, and the work done to try and meet this during the Games could again have an important medical legacy. Brian McCloskey is responsible for public health at the event as the Health Protection Agency's National Olympics and Paralympics lead. I spoke to him to find out how he planned to monitor and control infectious diseases and began by asking what would happen if symptoms such as diarrhoea or vomiting did break out in visitors. Well, the, the classical way is that you know people go and see their doctor, get a, a, a stool sample taken, it gets, gets a positive result and that's reported to us. Uh, and that's how, if you like, the public health legislation works. The problem with that, obviously, it takes several days for the patient to become ill, to get the doctor, to get the sample, to get the result, to get to us. So what we look for, rather than confirm diagnosis of salmonella or campylobacter or whatever, we look for the number of people who are attending their doctor who are complaining of having diarrhea and vomiting. And we can pick that information up through the NHS direct system or through primary care systems. And when we see that pattern changing, uh, then we know we should go in and look and do a more detailed investigation to find out why. We would then activate our team, our consultant team of medical doctors and nurses to go out, uh, identify the people who are um, ill and start questioning them, trying to see was there a common place they'd been, was there a common food they'd ate, etc. The usual then investigation would start. Um, we're also interested in what happens inside the park itself with the Olympic family, with the athletes, with the coaches, etc. It's normally quite difficult to get information um, from inside the park, but within the Olympic Polyclinic, which is where the athletes get most of their health care, we have an agreement with the organisers that the Polyclinic will report to us anonymised data about what's happening within the park. And how, how quickly does this all happen? How quickly are you able to, to pick things up and to act on them? Generally about twice as fast during the Games as, as at any other time because of the degree of media interest and political yeah. pressure that will be on us. Once we identify some people with respiratory illness, uh, getting a quick view about what the organism might be will take us a day or so, but we could probably do it within a day with some of our testing. And then the communications around the world will be happening at about the same time. So we would hope, you know, probably 24 or 48 hours, we would start to get some sort of feel for whether this was simply you know, an influenza A brought back from the Southern Hemisphere or whether it was something that required a bit a bit more worry and a bit more activity. The Hajj is one of the world's biggest and oldest mass gatherings. The number of pilgrims who attend is now around 2.5 million a year, making the Saudi Arabian government the most experienced in the world in terms of public health for mass gatherings. They've exploited mobile technology to rapidly collate and track disease information. Deputy Minister for Public Health Ziad Memish told me more. We started working on that uh, during the uh, pandemic H1N1 in 2009. And these are usual mobile devices that have been uh, modified and syndromic surveillance uh, forms have been uh, introduced. These devices are hooked uh, through satellite to uh, a server which is linked to the command center uh, at the uh, Hajj in Mina. Our public health officers carry these mobile devices and they go into the different camps of the Hajj and basically look for people with any symptoms suggestive of uh, meningococcal meningitis, uh, 
tuberculosis, we worry about respiratory viruses, uh, we worry about foodborne outbreaks, and we also worry about zoonotic diseases and, and viral hemorrhagic fevers. And uh, they enter the information instantly in the, com- in the mobile device, and that's transferred uh, immediately to our servers, and we can monitor this you know, hour by hour on any uh, suspected cases. Social media sites such as Twitter and Facebook are opening up possibilities for tracking disease patterns and communicating with visitors during events. Brian McCluskey again. We as an agency are on Twitter and we do use it and we do look at what's on there, but we don't have the capacity or the technology to systematically screen what's been said on Twitter in the way that might be useful. We had thought about that, but actually the technology you need and the resources you need are fairly substantial. But if we got a feel that something was happening, uh, then we would start to look at the Twitter message around to see was there a pattern in that that alerted us to what was happening as well. Mm. And and we've seen that when we had swine flu in the past, particularly with schools. Uh, A lot of the information about how many children were sick or what they were like was actually coming to us uh, on Twitter and email rather than um, through our normal technological resources and, and laboratory reporting. We do realize that nowadays uh, social media is extremely important in disseminating uh, appropriate health messages. Uh, at the uh, last mass gathering conference in Jeddah two years ago, uh, the Jeddah Declaration uh, included a recommendation that WHO will assist us in using social media in transmitting uh, uh, appropriate health messages to all the pilgrims across the globe. We're trying to see what easy methods we can use to sort of uh, be able to monitor disease occurrence while the Hajj is happening, uh, as well try to give the messages before the pilgrims come to us so that they can take the proper precautions. So what would happen in London this year if something possibly new and dangerous was detected? The first thing would be to check through the international connection to see was there something that was happening elsewhere, particularly Southeast Asia, which is where we tend to see new variants of influenza viruses emerging from. If there wasn't, we you know we would tend not to worry too much in the sense that say, it's unlikely that a new variant of an infectious disease would emerge in London for the first time. But we would want to start getting people tested to make sure we had enough samples that we could start doing uh, all the specialised testing at our reference laboratories that is necessary and again potentially sending samples off to other laboratories around the world for them to look at. It would then become quite a big investigation just to try and see how much information can we get very quickly. Uh, the first case of H1N1 was documented in Saudi in the beginning of June in 2009 and within a month we had our first 100 cases in Saudi. Uh, at that time we called for a, a major international consultation of all the experts in the area of mass gathering in Jeddah and we made uh, recommendations uh, that would apply for all the programs who come to us in 2009. Uh, there was a great concern that uh, people who are coming to us from countries which do not have H1N1 activities will acquire the disease in Saudi and then go back to their countries and spread the disease. Mm. Uh, but luckily with the interventions applied uh, at the uh, ports of entry as well as inside the country in Saudi, we were able to have a very successful season with I think only 73 cases of H1N1 documented in Saudi during the Hajj and no cases of Hajj acquired H1N1 were documented in any of the countries that sent programs to us. However, the monitoring during the event is only part of the package, with preventative action before just as important. Ziad Memish on Saudi Arabia's preparations. 
the Ministry of Health uh, invest uh, a lot of resources in in taking care of, of, of these pilgrims. Uh, we uh, we put out policies and procedures and, and health requirements that are uh, published through the, the WER and WHO and also, and also on peer-reviewed journals to make sure that the physicians and healthcare workers across the globe are adequately uh, informed about the uh, the Hajj and and what risks they carry to uh, to pilgrims coming to Saudi Arabia. A month ago, we we prepared uh, all the requirements uh, for the Umrah and the Hajj for this year by going through all the uh, literature and also uh, going through the information of uh, WHO, European CDC, the CDC in Atlanta, the Health Protection Agency, of whatever outbreaks that are happening across the globe. And based on these reports, we make up our recommendations uh, for 2012 Hajj. We send them to the Saudi embassies across the globe, and we also publish them in the WHO publications. These requirements will be enforced uh, by the embassies. If there are any vaccinations requirements, uh, then they request a certificate from the pilgrims uh, before they can issue the visa. Uh, in addition, at the ports of entry in Saudi, uh, we have our public health staff who review these certificates and they ask questions about the receival of the vaccine. And if there are any precautions or requirements on certain countries, uh, these are applied at the ports of entry. The World Health Organization Jeddah Declaration that Dr. Memish mentioned also recommended public health for mass gatherings becomes an academic specialty. Brian McCloskey told me why he thinks more evidence is needed. One of the issues that we found when we first started planning for the Games you know, six, seven years ago, just after London won the bid, we had sort of assumed that we could go and look up the book and see how do you run the public health system for Olympic Games. In practice, there is no book. And each Olympic Games tends to be organised as a very discrete, separate event. Currently, you know, LOCOG, the organising committee, is essentially a private company set up purely to run the London Games, franchised to do so, and effectively disappears after the Games are over. And another company, presumably called ROCOG, uh, will start running the Games for Rio de Janeiro in 2016. So each Games is a very discrete event, and there isn't really a, a good systematic way of passing knowledge gained in one Games through to the next. We did look at you know the normal medical literature to see what was there, and actually there's been relatively little published about surveillance and infectious disease at mass gatherings, particularly sporting ones. We've had much more around things like the highs recently. What is there is relatively reassuring. Not a lot happens in terms of infectious disease at most of the sporting mass gatherings, but the evidence simply isn't as uh, as good as we would like it to be, and that's one of the things that we would like to try and correct after the 2012 Games uh, by publishing more about what we do and what we find during our Games. It's a, a growing um, uh, recognition, one that there are special issues about mass gatherings that require special public health measures, but also that there's a lot of learning can be done across them. Um, and potentially there's a good legacy because what people tell me is that after things like the Olympic Games, public health systems in the country can be stronger because people recognise the importance of public health. We put in place new surveillance systems and there's much better communication with uh, across the main sectors of the health system. And that lasts beyond the Games. So I'm confident that we will have a legacy of better public health systems in the UK because of hosting the London 2012 Games. And we'll have more in the BMJ on Twitter and infectious disease monitoring in a few weeks. Watch out for a feature on the topic. That's everything for this week. Next week we have a diabetes special.
with Mabel Chu looking at detecting late-onset type 1 diabetes and new research on treatment with metformin and insulin. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.